Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we're in Acts chapter 8. We've been taking our time through this book. My hope is and plan is to finish this series on the advance of the gospel, the advance of the gospel. This will be the third part in that series, and we've been working through Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and now we're in 4 through 8. And as I said, it's my plan that we can finish it all today, but we'll see. So in Acts chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat underneath, uh, un- underneath the seat in front of you, uh, and you can grab that. That will uh, certainly help you. We are a church that looks at the Word constantly. If you haven't noticed, we've had the Word front and center in every aspect of our service, and certainly during this time, it is key. So let me read verses 4 through 8, and we'll go from there. Hear the word of the Lord. He says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Now, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Well, we're going to conclude, as I said, this small series on how God is advancing his church, how God is advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ outward from the birthplace of the church in Jerusalem outward into the world, to the point that eventually it ends up in a place called Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, what we have in the book of Acts here is a missional perspective, something that we talk about a lot here at Missio Day. For those of you who still don't know what, why we have our church named the way it is, it's Latin. It stands for the mission of God. And we talk about being a missional people, and then what we are being uh, done to each week is being provoked to actually put that into practice and not merely say that as something that we are, but we actually are a missional people. This is just a missional perspective, this uh, section of Acts, because it's focused outward into the rest of the world, rather inward in the city of Jerusalem. Much like in our church, one of the things that we did when we uh, started Missio Day was 
I was troubled and others were troubled with what I would call that inward focus of our church, where we, we looked inward and we took care of us and we, we, it was all about us and we looked at the people outside as our problem. They were the enemy. They were the ones to avoid. They were the ones that we, in one way or another, ought to put up sandbags. And, and most of us would never be so crass as to say it that way, but our lives reflected it. And one of the things that we sought to do then is how do we begin to turn all of our hearts and our eyes and our minds outward to the lost, who we once were, that somebody had shown us the kindness to share the gospel and bring to us Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and that all who believe in him alone are saved, saved from the wrath to come, saved from their sin, and saved into eternal life. That, that is our hope. We have that. But how do we have it? We have it because somebody came to us with the gospel. And that's what you see here is now the church is forced to go out into the world, and with it, they bring the gospel. In verse 4, then, the persecution arose. The church came under a vicious attack. They were being ravaged, the Bible says. And so as a result, many, many Christians fled. The apostles stayed. We talked about that briefly. The apostles were still in Jerusalem where they were continuing to preach the gospel, continuing to call the Jews to repentance that the true Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one promised from the Old Testament had come. They were still ministering to the believers who stayed behind, but many of the church had to scatter. And it's interesting, and I would say even sort of sad, to realize that the motivation for the very first great missionary movement was due to murder. We would like to think that it was due to a genuine desire for all who were there to see Jesus Christ be named among those who do not know him, to be loved throughout the world, that that's why they would go out and share the gospel outside of Jerusalem. But that's not why. The thing that pushed the people outward was the violent murder of Stephen, which we read about in Acts chapter 7. However, as the church fled, nonetheless, though they were fleeing persecution, they did not flee and abandon the gospel. It says rather that they went forth preaching the gospel or the good news. It was on their lips, not hidden. This, this persecution really was both satanic and God-ordained. And so we saw that though Satan abhors the church and because it's the body of Christ and Satan loathes the gospel, nonetheless, his evil purposes are turned to good by God who ordains all things for his purposes. And so persecution, therefore, becomes the primary vehicle for the spread of the gospel. And there's a lesson in that that I think is worth pausing before we enter into our passage. Just as a pastor to you, I would say to you simply, there are three things God has given to us in my experience that most Christians struggle to be faithful in. Now, you think about this. I don't need to know because I already know just from experience. Three things that most Christians struggle with. Prayer, 
Bible intake, and evangelism. Prayer, Bible intake, and evangelism. All three of these are actually given to us by God as a means to grow both, both the person and the church. And that is why I believe they're so hard for us to be faithful in. God has ordained that the way you will grow and as this church will grow is going to be through prayer, Bible intake, and evangelism. And what, what do you find out? All three of those are where we fail most miserably. One of the great lies in the movement called the Word of Faith movement, the old line Pentecostal movement, the new apostolic reformation movement, the latter rain type movements. If you don't know what they are, don't worry about them. Those of you who do understand this. One of the great lies that they bring is they actually end up teaching a false understanding on how the Holy Spirit works among his people, as well as how Satan attacks his people. Both of those are misunderstood, and as a result, they are so busy fighting Satan in all the wrong places using all the wrong tactics, and the reason for this is because they have a wrong grasp of how the Spirit works. And because of that, there's a lot of smoke and light and activity and excitement and actions and all of that, all sorts of emotion come pouring forth, but ultimately spiritual growth doesn't occur because the things God has given to us are very mundane and very boring and day-to-day kind of things. The real spiritual battle is truly mundane and humdrum. It is the way that we are easily diverted from the work of prayer. But prayer is what opens up the very throne room of God. We are diverted from Bible intake, which opens up the very mind of God to us. And we are diverted from evangelism that opens up the way of salvation and hope to all those we meet. Instead, we talk about you need a miracle, you need this, you need that. We need to hear a word from the Lord. We need to have this prophetic voice. We need this type of anointing. We need this additional, higher, deeper, fuller knowledge. All of it is diverting you from prayer, Bible intake, and true evangelism. And I think that what happens is in the times of plenty and peace, and even though we're paying ridiculous amounts for eggs, we are still in the time of plenty in this nation. And during the times of plenty and peace, what we do is we begin to believe that we have tomorrow promised. If you don't think that, then listen to the conversations you have with others. Pull up your text messages and, and threads. Go into your, your forum on, on investments or whatever and see how much of it is assuming that you're going to get a return 10 years from now because you're going to be alive. We all assume this in the times of plenty. We have time, and so right now we need to focus on the family. We need to focus on the career. We need to focus on the school. We need to focus on something. And then we'll get back to the gospel, the word of God, and prayer. We've just got things we got to take care of. And then somehow a whole lifetime wishes by, and we realize that we have failed to grow, to share, and to love God and man as we ought. Bible, 
prayer, and evangelism are to be the foundation of our life. But what happens is persecution, when it comes, burns through all of that. Too many times you are actually afraid to share the gospel, if you're honest. The the reason you're afraid to do it is you're afraid of the consequences that might come back on you. The possible pushback, the job situation, the relationship situation, the freedom situation, whatever it might be. But once that persecution happens, then everything becomes simple. You're no longer worried about trying to keep your job because you don't have your job. You're not trying to keep your freedom because you don't have your freedom. You're not trying to keep your home, your neighborhood, your reputation because you don't have them. Once persecution really hits, all of that's burned away, and guess what you're left with? Prayer, Bible, and evangelism. And what persecution does is strips all that stuff away until it's just that. Now, you and I can wait until that comes, and then we will be shown whether or not we're genuinely in Christ, or we can establish the habits of the day-to-day reality of putting those into practice now, even in the times of plenty, so that we are like the wise man who stores up wisdom for that day of calamity, for when that day comes. Well, to illustrate this, in verse 4, we see that those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. I mean, the, the good news of the word. Let me, let me show you what's going on there. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4. All of this is just introduction, but hopefully it'll be worth your time. Galatians, did I say Galatians? Ephesians, good. Phew. Um, I'm so busy fighting with my Bible pages that I don't even know where I'm going. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I want you to learn something and hear something you should know by now that's very important and often missed, and that is that the Bible is clear that the role of your pastor teachers, your leadership in the local church, is not to do the work but to equip you to do it. And that's what you see in verse 4. So in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says, And he, Jesus, gave himself, he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, that's the key term there. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? All believers. To do what? For the work of service, or that word service is the word ministry. For the work of ministry, to what end? To the building up of the body of Christ, which is the church. How long are you to be laboring in these ways? How long is the pastor teachers to be equipping the saints to do this? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all come to a unity in what we believe and why we believe, which will not happen until Christ comes, I believe and of the full knowledge of the Son of Christ until we see Christ fully to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So he goes on there, if you wanted to keep reading, that that the goal is so that we're not like children being tossed here and there by every foolish doctrine. 
And that's what you see happening back in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, these are not the apostles. Those who had been scattered went about, and what were they doing? They were preaching. They were literally proclaiming the good news of the word. They embraced that. The ministry, the gospel of Jesus Christ was given to the church, not merely to a select few. But it is something interesting about that reality because it seems very weak to us. Listen to me and tell me if this is not maybe you. We think that we are inadequate to the task, and so you become silent. You just, it's like, you don't, I'm not smart enough, or I don't know enough, or I'm not gifted enough. So we're inadequate to the task, and so we believe that lie, and we stay silent. We think about how little we know, or that we are given to mumbling and stuttering when we try to talk, and so we remain silent. But we forget that the power of salvation is not in us, but it is found where? In the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You have the gospel. You say, yeah, but I don't share it well. Who cares? It, it is, the power is not re- found within your skill set. In fact, you are supposed to be weak. You are supposed to be unable so that it does not rest upon you and your skills, but rather the glory rests upon God who saves. It's that simple. And so you come on a Sunday and you should begin to become equipped. And that's how you should arrange yourself on a Sunday when you come here is you're not here to just hear a good sermon or really feel a certain way, convicted or whatever. You are here to learn, to learn, to embrace and to expand your understanding so that when you go back into the world, you might be able to say, Lord, use me and allow me to then reflect what I have just learned. And here, so the church is mobilized by the pastor, elders, teaching and equipping. And then as that, that takes place in your life and your life is changed, you bring that life and that message into your neighborhood, your clubs, your workplace, your home, and you proclaim it. Well, today what we're going to see is how Luke focuses on one specific person, Philip, out of the large number of those fleeing persecution. This man, Philip, is is one of the seven. You'll remember them perhaps from Acts chapter 6. If you don't know about them, you can hear my sermons on them. They're online, and you can get caught up. But he was one of the seven selected, and he was like Stephan, another one of the seven. He It seems that he took the place, in fact, of Stephan, and he was a preacher who was an evangelistic preacher. And what I want to do is, using him, make three simple observations on how the gospel is spread. So, looking at verses 4 through 8, the first thing I want you to see is that the gospel is not confined to a specific people, but rather to the whole world. Now, before we learn a bit about Samaria, I want to make one little observation that might be of interest to you. In verse 5, 
Notice it says, now Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And you're like, okay, so what? If you have your Bible, you know probably, especially if you're a kid, because you probably look at them a lot while you're in a sermon, there's maps in the back of the Bible. And they show all kinds of things. They show the, the journey of uh, Israel in the wilderness. It shows you during the, the time of David, the, how the kingdom was set up in the various nations so that you can get a sense of what goes on. If you open up to the days of Jesus and the acts of the apostles, you'll find Samaria, and Samaria is north of Jerusalem. And if you were to say that properly, they would not go down to uh, Samaria. They would go where? They would go up, and that's what we, you don't go down to Green Bay from here, do you? Uh, you go up to Green Bay, and you go down to Chicago because of just the simple idea of north versus south. I just say this, and it's a small thing, it's, but, but I hope it will encourage maybe somebody in the room. Jerusalem was the high point in this area. And therefore, it, to go anywhere, it doesn't matter which direction you're going, whenever you went anywhere and you left Jerusalem, you went down to it. And it, it's just one of those little things in the Bible that stands out to me as I invest my entire life studying just this book, of these little details that are always so precise. And at first you look at it and you're like, see, they don't even understand directions or something like that. No, they understand directions very well. They also understand very well what they're talking about. And you can take the word for what it says, and you don't ever have to think there's some kind of a contradiction or folly. Too often today we have people telling us how we ought not to trust the Bible. And even in the little details, we find things like this that show how accurate and careful it is. Why? Because it is God who had it written. Well, with that, let's talk briefly about Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to him or them. Now, again, my point is that the gospel is not confined to a specific people, but the whole world. And the first place we are introduced to is Samaria. Now, you have to know your Bible for this. This is why we're always telling you to read your Bible and, and go all the way through it. King Solomon, who was the son of David, he was a wise king in many ways, but also showed a lot, a lot of folly. And when he died, his son, Rehoboam, took over as king. And Rehoboam was a foolish young man. He listened to the young uh, counselors rather than the old men who knew better. And he decided that he was going to come down hard on the people to let them all know that he's now the king. And the end result of that is that he split the nation of Israel. And 10 of the 12 tribes went away from him. So he really messed this up. And the 10 tribes became what's called the Northern Kingdom. And usually in the Old Testament, they are referred to as Israel, which is can get confusing if you don't know this. So Israel, after Rehoboam was king, no longer is Israel the 12 tribes usually, but Israel the 10 tribes, the northern kingdom. Rehoboam managed to only keep two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and they became known as Judah. Later on, a guy named Omri, he was the king of, uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he named the new capital of the northern kingdom as Samaria. That's in 1 Kings chapter 16. And eventually, all of that area then became known as Samaria. 
In AD 722, then Assyria is the world power and they're dominating everything. And they capture Israel, the northern kingdom Israel, the 10 tribes. And one of the things they did was they deported all of the wealthy and powerful people. They took all the ones who were intelligent and well-trained and they took them and put them in Assyria. And then they brought in all these displaced people from other countries into the 10 tribes, into Israel and had them live there. Daniel is about that time. And what you have now is all of these people who no longer are part of the culture of Israel, even though it was all messed up and wicked, they they didn't have the temple to go and worship. And all of these people now have all these foreigners living in the land, and they're living among them, and they all begin to intermarry, and all of that ends up resulting in this influx of all sorts of strange beliefs and false religion added to all of the idolatry that Israel was already doing at that point, which was exceedingly great. And so after the exile, the Jews of the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, came back into the land. Ezra and Nehemiah are about that. And when they came in, they saw these people, the Samaritans. Now, time, a lot of time has gone on, longer than uh, many of us grasp. And so they come back to the promised land, and they see all of these half-breeds, and that's what they saw them as, half-breeds. These were the political rebels. They knew the history. They went away. They went off with uh, Jeroboam, the king of Israel. They went with all the wicked ones. They were taken away. And look at them. They've intermarried. They haven't been faithful. They are a wicked people. They were a defiled people. About 400 BC then, the Samaritans on their own, decided they needed a place to worship and the temple because they couldn't come down to Jerusalem where the temple was. So they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That was later destroyed in the second century AD. One of the unique aspects of these people is that they did not accept any of the other Old Testament, only the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. To be sure, understand that the time frame in which they split away, much of the Old Testament still didn't exist anyhow. So they only had that those five books of the Bible, And then they had all of this other idolatrous stuff that they brought in and they intermarried. And so they had this weird conglomeration of one messed up religion. And as a result of all of this, they were hated and despised. They were the people you stayed away from. They were the ones that you would make jokes of and mock them and and despise them in every way. Christ, of course, came to a woman who was a Samaritan woman. She was out by the well. And he spoke to her and she was shocked and, the, and his disciples were shocked that one, he would speak to a woman. Two, that she, he would speak to a Samaritan woman. And then worse yet, we found out that this was a woman of questionable morals. As he tells her to go and tell her husband, knowing full well what is going on. And she's like, well... I'm not married, and he's like, look, I know you, you, you've, you've, you've had multiple husbands. You burned through them all, and now the one you're living with isn't even your husband. A thing of absolute shock in that day, something that was despicable and hateful. 
Today, we just kind of like, so what's the big deal? Except it's wicked and evil and sinful and worthy of God's judgment. Other than that, nothing. And he calls her on it, and yet he still displays to her grace. And she finds out that he is the Christ. The Samaritans still look for the day of the Christ, the, the anointed one. And he tells her the hope. The, the apostles or the disciples at this point can't even grasp, why would you talk to her, a woman? And second, why a Samaritan woman? They can't get their head around it. When he uses the parable, uh, he talks about the good Samaritan. Why? Well, that just annoyed every Jew. They could handle a parable about the good Israelite, the good Pharisee, whatever, but to pick a, a Samaritan and to make him the good guy Who are you doing this for, Jesus? Why are you doing it this way? Because God has come to save those who are lost. And now Philip, as he's fleeing, he goes out to these same people who don't belong. They don't belong to anyone. They're these weird half-breeds, still hated, still under the dominion of Satan. And he brings them the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they need it. Therefore, we need to have a takeaway in this just little statement in verse 5 of the societal blindness we might have where we say we won't go to them. We won't speak to them. I remember being the jail chaplain and initially having that real bad attitude toward these inmates. You know, they're in there for good reason. They did wrong. And look at them and, and, and how they acted. And they were like animals at times, especially when a riot broke out. I mean, everything became free and flowing and violent. And at first, I had to deal with the fact that these were people I did not like until I began to finally see them as souls, that these are broken men and Desperately under the dominion of sin. They were raised in a household of sin. They didn't have a chance from day one. They were raised by their crack addict mom. They had no dad. They, they lived on the streets. There was violence every day. Not to even make an excuse, just the recognition that these were broken people like everyone else and that God has called us to call all people to repentance. And so the first observation is very simple. It's that the gospel is not confined to a specific people, but to the whole world. So who are you avoiding is the question. Who are the ones that you might not be speaking to? Maybe the ones that you think are too far gone. If you read uh, Grayson's uh, posts on his uh, blog on the chorus and the chaos. He shared his own testimony, and then he tells people, "Look, having a really cool testimony is not the goal, actually. But he is a walking testimony that you can be quite a wretched man. Sorry, brother, um, and and wonderfully saved by God's grace. All of us are to see that God has called us to the world. Second observation: the gospel destroys." the power of Satan within the world. The crowds with one accord, verse 6, were giving attention to what was being said by Philip, and they heard and saw the signs which he was doing. Why? For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, demons, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and so there was great joy in the city. 
The gospel will always destroy the power of Satan within the world. It's easy to forget that there is a real spiritual battle and a real real spiritual dimension. One of the things I tell people here, um, and I've told it to Grayson, I told it to Matt when Matt was learning to preach, and is, is watch. Watch how often you begin to share the gospel in your preaching and how often coughing fits will take place. And all of a sudden, that somebody just has to get up and leave the room. And all sorts of distractions will take place. It's constant. And, and the people don't even think about it. They don't, they have this, this urge. I need to go. I, I'm just too thirsty. I need to go use the restroom. I need this. I need that. And they get up and they walk away and they give no thought of what's actually happening in the room. Whether or not they are helping or hindering the proclamation. But it happens time and time and time again in the preaching. And I tell them, and they, they, they all see it now, they believe it, right? Is there's a real spiritual battle that takes place every single Sunday. You have no idea how often it's the weirdest thing, preaching. Leonard, you know this feeling too. That you're, you're, you've got this like split personality going on. You're battling your own attitude. And that sometimes that can be really bad. You're, you're, you're trying to preach to the people and communicate to them what you actually have prepared. And at the same time, you're, you're praying. And so you have all these different things going on all at the same time in your mind, and people wonder why you want a nap at the end of the day. It's a tiring process, but there's a battle, and you and I forget that it goes on. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but that's what we do, but against the rulers, the powers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Go, if you will, just keep your finger here, but go all the way back into 2 Kings chapter 6, if you can find that. If you're using the Pew Bible, the Bible under the seat, it's in the front portion of your Bible, and it'll be page 277, just to help you get there quickly. I want you to see a story and understand it. You, many of you know it. Elisha is the prophet, and he's, he's pretty cool. He, he does some pretty neat things. And it says, Now the king of Aram, in verse 8, was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Then the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, no, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. It's not our fault. You got, they got this guy named Elisha, and he just knows stuff. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. I was told to him, saying, behold, he's in Dothan. 
So he sent horses and chariots, and they had a military force there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So there's the setting. And so you got poor old Elisha, who he just happens to be a prophet, so he tells the king of Israel, hey, this is what's going to happen. Don't do it. So the, the king of Ar- Ar- the Aramean king, he says, fine, we'll go kill him. He brings out an entire military force big enough to surround the city, and they're going to go get this guy. Now, that is what we see. That's, that's all you see, right? You see what's going on in the government. You see what's going on in the world around us. You see all of the stuff. Right now, everyone's chatting about the, the Chinese balloon, and that's the flavor of the day. We all got to talk about that and what we need to do here and what we need to do there. And you're talking about your work, and you're talking about your problems. Whatever it might be, that's where you and I oftentimes stop. We got a city surrounded by the enemy. But God continues on in verses 15 to 20. Then the attendant of the man of God, the man of God is Elisha. The attendant, his servant, arose early, went out, and behold, a military force with horses and chariots was all around the city. And this young man said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he said, do not fear. How annoying that would be around that guy, right? Yeah, it's, it's fine. Fix me my breakfast. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha uh, prayed and said, Oh, Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And they came down to him, and Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. And so he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, he's saying this to the army, This is not the way. This is not the city. Walk after me, and I will walk you over to the man whom you seek. And he walked them over to Samaria. And now it happened that when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So Yahweh opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. That's the reality. How often do you dwell with that awareness that you are not alone? How often? Honestly, how often? How often do you look at the situation and realize that you have against you the fullness of the hatred of Satan? How often are your decisions based purely upon the here and the now and not recognize that there's a spiritual battle that is constantly waging war? You can go back to Acts Francis Schaeffer had this wonderful illustration of the materialist and the Christian in a room. Let me read it. He says, essentially, the universe is just a room and nothing else. Let's just treat it that way. Our world that we live in, the universe, is just a room, nothing else. Two men in the room, one a materialist, one a Christian, Years of examining everything in the room was done by the materialist. In the end, he presents the Christian with, uh, with many books that he's written on the subject. And then the Christian points out that it is incomplete. 
Here's what Schaefer writes. Finally, the Christian turns to the materialist and says, well, this is a tremendous work. You've really told me a great deal about my universe that I wouldn't otherwise have known. However, my friend, this is all very fine, but it's drastically incomplete. You can imagine this man who has spent his lifetime pouring out his heart to do this measuring and his weighing, suddenly taken aback. He turns and says to the Christian, well, now, I'm shocked that you tell me that's not all that it's not all here. What have I missed? And the Christian responds something like this. Well, I have a book here, the Bible. And it tells me things that you do not know. It tells me of the origin of the universe. Your scientific investigation by its very nature can't do that. It also says nothing about where you and I as men came from. You have examined us because we, like the paint on the wall, are phenomenon in the universe. You've studied something of our psychology. You've even given me several volumes of it, but you have not told me how we came to be here. You don't know the origin of either the universe or us. Furthermore, the Christian continues, I know from this book that there is more to the universe than you have described, that there is an unseen portion as well as a seen portion. There is a cause and an effect relationship between them. They're not mutually exclusive, but are parts of the one reality. It's as if you had taken an orange, sliced it in half, and only concerned yourself with one of the halves. To understand the reality in our universe properly, you have to consider both halves, both the seen and the unseen. In this sense, supernatural is not a good word to describe the unseen portion. We must understand that the unseen portion of the universe is just as natural as the real and real as the seen portion. Furthermore, the seen and the unseen are not totally separated. When we do certain things, it makes a difference in the unseen world, and the things in the unseen world make a difference in the seen world. And my only question to you is, do you believe that? Have you ever considered the work of Satan in silencing your mouth? Have you ever considered the work of Satan in squelching your desire to read the word? Have you ever considered the work of Satan in why you don't pray as you ought to pray? Does that enter your mind? We don't have the time, but you could go to Daniel chapter 10, where it says that, uh, that the angel that came to him was held up he was supposed to be there earlier, but he got held up to come to Daniel to, for, with a message because he was fighting a demon named as named the Prince of Persia. And so there's this evidence of territorial demons. Now take that concept of this territorial demon who's a prince of Persia, not a video game, but an actual demon, be, and he's fighting with the angel, holding him back from his task. And none of us know this is going on. And now put it in Samaria here with Philip. Philip is fleeing. Philip is running with the other people. But he brings the gospel and he goes into the hated people of Samaria and he begins to preach the gospel. And the first thing that comes front and uh, to the front is the demonic presence in this land. No wonder they were such a despicable people. They're literally held in captivity by Satan. 
And so as he preaches the gospel and he proclaims the true God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, the thing that is compelled, he's not having an exorcism service. He's not having a healing service. He's there preaching the gospel. And as he's doing this, these things are happening. Why? Because truth will not allow the lie to stand. Light will not allow darkness to be present. And so Satan is being literally, through these unclean spirits, being cast out of them. And the result in verse 8 is what? Great joy. Well, of course there's great joy. One of the great lies people believe is that Jesus destroys joy. Some of you do. So I can see it on your face. You're here because mom and dad make you be here. You don't want to be here. Some of you are here because your husband, your wife wants you here, and you have no interest in it because you think in some way or another, though you might be, not be so crass as to say it out loud, is there's no way I'm following Christ because he will destroy what I want. And that somehow you'll miss out. What are you going to miss out on? Why do people walk away from the gospel? Why do people apostatize? Because they ultimately see that Christ is not going to give them what they think they really want. He robs them of it. And so they look at other things that promise them other kind of joy that they think is worth it, of happiness. They're unwilling or unable to look at the hidden hook that Satan puts in those promises until it's too late and they're hooked. But you go anywhere where the lies of Satan abound and the cost is seen, and you don't find joy. That's not what's going on in Samaria. They might be laughing. They might have their parties. They might have their plays and their activities and their dinners and their functions. But darkness is in that land. And it's not obvious that it's dark until the light of the gospel comes and they hear it and they believe in there and the demonic oppression is being lifted off of them that they finally discover the real joy. You go anywhere where Satan's lies abound. Dread and darkness will be heavy on those people. Some of you live in, perhaps in homes of that way. Some of you live in neighborhoods that are that way. Have you ever gone into neighborhoods where it's just dark? And if not, you need to get out more. Have you ever watched it where you just see the darkness and the weightiness and you see it way down the people and they're crushed under it and they don't even understand it while they snarl and fight and, and push and they're going to fight their way through it because they're that way. Mom didn't raise, raise me to be a quitter. And they're going to fight and kick and bite their way. And it just goes into deeper and deeper darkness. You want to know what it looks like, go watch the videos of the streets of San Francisco or Philadelphia, but it's right here in Kenosha. And when the person truly believes and they see the glory of Jesus Christ and their sins are pronounced forgiven, joy always is a fruit. And that's what's really happening here. You're like, ooh, that's cool. Demons getting cast out. No, what's cool is people are being saved. And through the hearing and believing the gospel of the risen Lord, then light and life comes pouring in, and they rejoice, and they have hope. Verse 
This is what Philip's proclaiming. He's proclaiming what? He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. He's preaching that the gospel is here. What is the gospel? The gospel is the promised one of the Old Testament is found in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior and he is the King or Lord. His death brings to all who believe true forgiveness because he dies in our place as our substitute. What is the gospel? The gospel is not only did he die, but that he rose again on the third day as he promised, defeating the power of sin, which is death. That we all now who believe in him have life because of him, eternal life. And that's what Jesus, uh, Philip was doing. He's doing this in the name or the authority of Jesus. He wasn't preaching this in the authority of Philip. It wasn't come and see the healing services of Philip the mighty. It was Philip, the servant, the slave of Jesus, coming into a town of hated people that he would look down upon and preaching to them Jesus Christ. So don't confuse the gospel. I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to do a little seg- or excursus in the next few weeks on signs and wonders movement. So that's why I'm mentioning these things. The gospel is not ever to be then confused with miracles or signs. The gospel is a pro- proclamation of Christ. Philip's message was that Jesus was the Messiah. So the last point I want you to see in this gospel of advance is do not confuse the gospel with the miraculous. In our day, this is very common, and that's why I'm going to go off on that as we look at Simon the magician in the next verses. We'll deal with that passage, and then I'm going to do a a bit of an excursus on it. The gospel is never a gospel of miracles, it will always and only be the gospel of the risen Jesus. He preached Christ. He didn't preach Jesus. It says that he preached Christ to them. Why? Because the Christ is the one promised in the Old Testament that would come to save. This is, again, a lot like what the Samaritan woman experienced when Jesus spoke to. She said to him in John 4, I know that the Messiah, meaning the Christ... I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And that's what excited her. And even in her deficient knowledge of the word and all of the sin and everything else, the one thing she knew is that there was coming one, the anointed one, the Christ, who would finally bring truth to us. And he says, I am that one. And that's who Jesus is, and that's who Philip proclaimed. That's who I proclaim to you, the one who is anointed by God to bring us life. And so Philip would tell the despised people, captured under the weight of their sin and Satan, that the Christ had come. But along with that preaching, he performs what the Bible calls these signs. So what is that? Well, the passage appears to indicate that the cause of much of Samaritan's problems was due to this demonic oppression. There's ample evidence in the Bible that sometimes things, uh, people can become paralyzed, blind, or made dumb, all of that due to demonic powers. 
But never does the Bible attribute it always to that cause or only to that cause, so we should not either. What you actually just simply see here is the natural results of evangelism. As the gospel is proclaimed, the powers of darkness become pushed away. You don't have to push away the powers and then preach the gospel because the power of darkness is resident within the heart of the man anyhow. They're dead in their sin. Only the work of the Spirit can enliven them to hear and to believe. Philip did not go on a healing crusade, beloved. He was not out there making a big deal of how he was going to do an exorcism service. you got to get that. Rather, all he was doing was bringing the gospel to these poor, oppressed people. They believed the gospel. The work of the Spirit then immediately comes into effect, and Satan is shoved aside. No man, or rather no demon, can ever remain in anyone who believes. The heart and soul is indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and he will tolerate no demonic presence there. Here's my point. Throughout history, so many have become so sidetracked from that central task of bringing the gospel to unbelievers because of the desire for miraculous, but that's not the gospel. Instead of obedience to the call of being gospel bearers, that's what you're called to do, that's what all of us are called to do, we want to become miracle workers. We seek out those who claim to have some so-called anointing believing that in them there's some kind of greater power. There's so much bad theology in that statement. When you look at a man, like, like you look at a John MacArthur, my old pastor, right? And you start to think that somehow within him is a better ability to bring truth. When you do that, you actually show yourself to have a deficient theology of man and God. The power and the ability and the breadth of the ministry is never up to the man. It will always be up to God. Always. Instead of obedience to be hearers of the gospel and then live out those commands... Go chasing after miracles. It's not the way of the cross. In fact, a few people, only a few people in Acts were able to ever perform these signs or wonders. And that certainly does not equal, therefore, we should expect them at all times. In fact, there's a passage as I pull all of this together in Matthew 7 where it says, Jesus is saying this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Is that not today? People claiming prophecies, miracles, casting out of demons. It's even happening here in Acts 8. You're going to find all of this. It's just the reality. Many will say to me on that day, I did these things. I did them in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity or you who practice lawlessness. You were never mine and I've never known you. 
The fact that one does miracles, even in the name of Jesus, means nothing. Jesus says that what matters is are you doing the revealed will of the Father in the Word. The only person who will do that is the one who has first believed the gospel. Anyone who claims to be preachers of the gospel who really emphasize sons and wonders, we should not give any special attention. In fact, I would say that whenever you find a person who is all about talking about miracles and signs and prophetic, those are the ones you should avoid because they're distracting you from the simple power found in prayer, Bible, and evangelism. The gospel is sufficient. So what we see here is that God is working not just among Israelites or Jews. He's working among the wicked people of Samaria and even in Kenosha. And we see here also that God is saving and he pushes back the power of Satan through the gospel And finally, we see that the gospel may have miracles attached to it at times, but in no way, shape, or form should you ever call the miracle the gospel. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the horror of these poor people losing everything as they flee outward, all they had was the gospel, but they were faithful to bring it. Beloved, you don't have that going on now, but you still have the gospel. Be faithful with that. Bring it to the people that God brings into your life. And may you trust in him and him alone to do his work. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you help us to understand. Help us to see what we ought to be and to do. Let us see the unseen, whether it be demonic or angelic. doesn't matter, Lord, that we be aware that there's this fierce battle going on in our household, in our marriages, in our towns, schools, city, and it's a spiritual one. And that we not be so foolish into saying simple answers, but rather we see that the only thing that will change anything is the gospel. We ask that you might move in our nation in such a way that the gospel would go forth in that uniquely powerful way it's done in the past, and many people be converted. But if that is not your will, then instead we be faithful in the ordinary means of learning, praying, and then preaching the gospel to those who do not know. Help us to that task, I say in the Son's name. Amen.